um, as we continue to talk about the awkward essential challenge of Christian community, I'm reminded that, you know, any community is challenging and awkward sometimes. Uh, if you don't believe that, just look at our beloved nation. Uh, it's a group of people who have uh, only one thing in common, right? Uh, citizenship. For most of us, uh, you guys are going places you shouldn't go. Remember, this is a biblical sermon, so, you know, keep politics out of it. But um, society is a bunch of people functioning together. And that's what our church is. It's a group of people functioning together, or we should be a group of people functioning together. And so as you look at societies, whether American or Chinese, uh, Egypt or Israel or Rome, all of them have their own kind of cultures. They all have their own kind of norms. They all have their own agreed-upon principles, and that's how they function. So if one of you were in here and you said, hey, there's a green monkey in charge, or there's a blue bird, or perhaps a pink panther, the question would be, well, who's really in charge? Who's the authority? Whose truth is it that we need to go by? And so today, as we look at our church, as we look at the things that make us a church, I want to talk to you about the uncomfortable facts, the uncomfortable truth of what it means to be a body of believers who stand in Christ. Sociology is the study of these things, the study of the development, structure, and function of human society. Well, today I want to look at a few uncomfortable facts of what it is to be part of the society of not only Church Universal, but more specifically, Allegan Bible Church. What are some tenets that we stand on? What are some things that we believe in? What are the uncomfortable facts of what it means to be a member of Allegan Bible Church? So, while that is about to be uncomfortable for you, just believe me when I say it's uncomfortable for me too. But we're going to pray, and then we're going to go to God's Word. Uh, God, our Father in heaven, we pray that as we gather to look at some uncomfortable facts this morning, we ask that you would gather us to yourself. You have called us to die to ourselves, and so we pray that you might help us to do that even now, this very hour. Let us hear your word as your word, not man's opinion. Help us to understand that not everything our Bible says is going to be easy for us to understand or even to accept, and yet it is your word. And therefore, we must not only accept it, but seek to cherish as well as herald it unashamedly. So as we know that you are opposed to the proud and yet give grace to the humble, let us all then humble ourselves under your holy word this morning. Grant us understanding through that same Holy Spirit that you have gifted to us through the power of Christ as he purchased us by his death, burial, and resurrection. That's in his name we do pray. Amen. So as we look at the uncomfortable facts, I want to start with this. There has to be an authority, and he is the authority. And so we have to start there. There's really no other place that we can start. Even the Bible itself says, in the beginning, God. And so it starts with God as the authority. Uh, Revelation 1.8 says this, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In Matthew 28.18, as we just got done with Matthew, you should be familiar with this, uh, Jesus came to them and said, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so this God-man, fully God, fully man, who left his glory and his authority to come to be on earth to pay for us and to redeem us as a people to himself, now has been given this authority back, all authority on heaven and on earth. And 
this is a freebie for you, but I was talking to a couple brothers in Christ. If you want to go to Revelation chapter 5 sometime on your own and look at that, you will see the worship and the honor and the glory that is now given to the Lamb who was slain. But a quote that I want to give you is from Jeremiah Burroughs, an early theologian. This is what he says, Christian contentment is the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. That's wordy, so let me simplify it. Christian contentment is resting in the authority of God. Christian contentment is resting in our God is God, there is no other. Christian contentment is he is God and I am not, and simply resting there. See, the, the authority of God and of Christ is something that is uncomfortable. He is God, you are not. He is God, I am not. Do not say that you go to Pastor John's church. Say that you go to Allegan Bible Church, which is just one of the many stones on the garment of Christ's bride, her wedding dress. But the authority of God and Christ is something that doesn't care about your personal autonomy. In fact, the love of personal autonomy is exactly what the first sin was born out of. God had a command for them. Don't eat from this one tree. A very simple command. And yet in their own eyes, they thought, hey, he must be keeping something from us. I want my own autonomy. Therefore, I will take and I will eat. And so the love of personal autonomy is against God's authority. And that, beloved, is hard for us to hear in America. Where we can have whatever flavor we want. There's 36,000 of ice cream. There's one for each and every one of us, right? We can each have our own. Just ask Ben and Jerry. We can each have our own uh, everything. You have your own Netflix queue. Personal cell phones. Now, don't think, oh, pastor's a communist. I'm not. What I'm saying is, is this. In a body of believers, the sum is greater than its parts. In the body of believers, our autonomy is not the goal. God's authority is what we seek to bend to. That also takes us then to the authority of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness. Now, I've talked to people, and maybe you have somebody in your own life who would say, Hey, when you say that God is authoritative, how do you get there? And the answer is, Well, I get there because scripture says so. And I say, Well, that's circular reasoning. Because scripture says God's authoritative, and then you say God's authoritative, and he's authoritative, and he gave us the scripture, and so that's how I know he's authoritative. Did you follow all that, or did I go too fast for you? I can draw a picture next time. Ask me questions. But none of us would have that same concern if we got a book that was written by Abraham Lincoln, and in the beginning it said, this book is written by Abraham Lincoln, and then he went on to to write the book. None of us would question if that book has been written by Abraham Lincoln. So why is it different here? Just because we can't see him? God doesn't require your sight. It doesn't change the fact that God is the authority. I want you to notice the slide that I have up here. I don't say that God has authority. No, no, no. 
God is the authority. There's character aspects that we give to God. Some of them are things like mercy and grace and love. And we often forget that one of his character attributes, the thing that makes him God, is that he is authority. And so then is his word. 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks to this. All scripture is breathed out by God, is profitable for teaching, for repute, for correction, for the training in righteousness. Even the parts that you don't like to hear and I don't like to read. Even when I'm getting ready to prepare a message or you're getting ready to hear it, which could cause others outside in the world or in the community to be upset with the people at Allegan Bible Church. And it might someday become not very cool for you to tell an employee or a fellow student that you go to that kind of a church. 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. <clears throat> for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I can always tell. Norm, <coughs> will you go get me a mint from down in the thing down there? Thank you. <coughs> Don't worry, it's not COVID. I feel like I have to say that all the time now. What he's saying is here is even the Old Testament prophecy. This is New Testament. Peter is making this statement about Old Testament prophecy, and he's saying the same thing that is said by Paul in the second letter of Timothy. All these things come from God. The Old Testament comes from God. It is his authoritative word. All of Scripture is breathed out by him. So Timothy wasn't just saying just the New Testament or just that letter. He was saying all of it. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit uh, who is from God and who we might understand. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. No, that's good. You're, you're like the Lord. You lavish good things upon me. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so one of the mysteries of Scripture is simply this. You can't even understand the authority of Scripture as Scripture unless you have the Holy Spirit. Because it takes His authority to actually help our finite minds to wrap ourselves around it. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great pastor, theologian, teacher, we should not interpret scripture in light of our experiences, but we should examine our experiences in the light of the teaching of scripture. That is so important, I'm going to say it again. We should not, and in fact, I'm going to change it slightly. Not only we should not, we cannot. It is wrong to Interpret scripture in light of our experiences. We should, we must, examine our experiences in light of the teaching of scripture. That is the authority of scripture because it is the authority of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And in his word, he also then delegates that authority. We see that authority has been delegated to Christ who is God, but in the second person of it. But also in Christ, in his uh, letters, 
that through the Holy Spirit were written to the church of the age of which we now exist. The authority also then has been transferred to the community of believers known as the church. And then a subsection of that, the leadership of those bodies of believers known as elders and deacons. That also is unpopular. Which is interesting because for our country, we find it very appropriate to elect officials to rule over us. And yet in church, we find that somehow we don't want to submit to the authorities in the church. But if we join a community, we are part of the community, even the uncomfortable parts. If you join a club, you are going to be held accountable to the standards of that club. There are rules for that club. You don't just get to walk onto any golf course you want to and sling your bag over your shoulder and start teeing off on whatever green you want. You have to set up an appointment and go along with the right channels. I think. I don't play golf. I don't know. That's right, right? My point is this. Community is uncomfortable, especially in a mind-your-own-business culture. That's not the culture of a church. If you're under the impression that you get to just come, show up, mind your own business, and I will mind my own business too, and I won't get into your business, and they're just going to leave here and continue to do it, then, then you're wrong. This is the wrong place for you. The authority of the church is given to us by Christ. Matthew 18. I encourage you to read that section. I, I know we just did. I may have talked about this when I preached on it. It's been long enough now where I should have went back and listened to my sermon. Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is this part of church discipline. It is for your good. When the church has to have discipline, it's for the good of those who are part of it. It's not to bring people up and be like, hey, look at this idiot who's messing things up in their lives. It's so that they might be restored to the body of believers. It's to guard us from going our own way. Because scripture says the heart of man is foolish and full of all kinds of wickedness. Who can work it out, it says, except for the Lord. And so the authority of the church is meant to help us. And then it comes to the authority of the church leaders. And originally it was the apostles. Well, the apostles are gone. So what they have done is they have delegated that to the elders over local bodies, of which I am one. And right now, Matt McPherson is one, and Drew is one. So if you're on pastoral staff, you're automatically an elder. Trust me, there was a process that went through that. It's not just like, oh, you're hired, and now you're an elder. There's biblical mandates to that. In fact, if you want to, you can go to 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, and you yourself can read through those things and hold me accountable to them and hold Matt accountable and hold Drew accountable and the rest of the deacons that are there. Hold us accountable. Why? Because that's your job. That's how you keep us safe. And therefore, we can keep you safe. And 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says, And God has appointed in the church first his apostles, second prophets, and teachers. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13, We ask, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. James 3.1 gives this warning. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13.17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, 
Do you understand that one day I will stand before the Lord and not only answer for myself like all of us will, but I will also answer for being the pastor of a church? You don't have to do that. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Here's what Peter, remember who Peter is? Man, what a goofball. This is what Peter says, though. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so we, we often shiver or buck at the idea of submitting to authority. But when we understand the biblical mandate for how that authority is supposed to be run, it is beautiful and for our good. And it ought to be something that we can do joyfully. And so here's the uncomfortable fact. Firstly, this morning, he is the authority. And that's the end of the discussion. He doesn't ask for your permission. He rules and he reigns. And he does not need your approval. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And that is without any concern to you because he is who he is. And that's even what he told Moses. On whose authority should I tell Pharaoh to let my people go? Just tell him I am because that's it. That's all he needs to know. The God of all authority. And so because of that, we may feel like we've hit on this, but we're going to really get more uncomfortable this morning. His word is truth. John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I already referenced it a little bit about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and that Word became flesh. And we also now have his physical copy of the Word. We are such a blessed nation where every single one of us can own it. We probably have multiple copies gathering dust somewhere in our houses. John Stott says this, We must allow the Word of God to confront us to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. His word is truth. Even the uncomfortable parts. And we can't be so foolish as to think that there's no uncomfortable parts. I'm going to read some to you that are uncomfortable. But there's still truth. First thing is, is that we believe in an invisible, all-powerful, eternal, omnipresent being that created us, sustains us, and oversees us corporately, and also cares for us and plans for us individually. That's uncomfortable. We believe in mystery food that fell from the sky and water that came from a rock. We believe that Aaron's staff turned into a snake. And we also believe that later it produced almonds and flowered and budded apart from any other life source. We believe that there was a time where there was a day that was longer than 24 hours because the world stopped spinning or as the Bible says, the sun stood still. 
We believe that three men got thrown into a fiery furnace and came out without even the smell of smoke on their clothes. We believe that a man survived even after being swallowed by a giant fish for three days. We believe that a woman without any kind of intercourse became pregnant and bore the Son of God. We believe that same man is fully God and fully man who healed the blind, who raised the dead, who gave hearing to the deaf, who walked on water, who fed thousands with a couple loaves, and who will one day come again, even though none of us have ever seen him face to face. Those are some uncomfortable facts. But his word is truth. Some of that is the exclusivity of it. His word says there's only one God. There's not multiple gods. His word says there's only one truth, and it is this truth, his biblical truth. Not your truth, not my truth. God doesn't care about that because there's only one thing that is true. He says that there's only one way, not multiple ways. He says that he is the only one authority like we already covered. But because his word is truth, because he's the ultimate authority, that some rubber meets the road on a few things. That means there is such a thing as objective morality. He gave it to us. It's called the Ten Commandments. Perhaps you've heard of it. But the Ten Commandments are his holy standard of how we are to live. And then, if that wasn't good enough for us, if that seemed confusing or there was too much gray area, Jesus came. And he did a great expository sermon. His entire life was one. And he showed us what that means. He lived it and he spoke it. And he raises the bar. But this objective morality that the Bible teaches have some things in it that are uncomfortable facts for our culture today. And I think maybe one of, the, one of the most foremost in our culture is about gender and sexuality. The word of authoritative truth says that there are only two biological genders. The word of authoritative truth says that God created and celebrates our bodies because we bear his image, and that means everything about us, even our sexuality. His authoritative word of truth means that Christian conduct in the bedroom has to look different than the world's. And, by the way, it means that your sexuality is not a private matter. What I mean by that is you are held accountable by the rest of the body of believers for what you do as a Christian. I've said this before. Perhaps you've heard me. Uh, the saying goes like this. If it walks like a duck and it sounds like a duck, then it's a duck, right? Well, if you claim Christ and you live other than what Christ says, see first comment. Jesus' word and the authoritative text of Scripture says any form of sex outside of marriage is never okay. It tells us that sexual immorality includes our thoughts, our words, as well as our deeds. And because he is the authority and because his word is the truth, any practice outside this is a sin and dishonors God. And that is an uncomfortable fact today. And it doesn't stop there. What about race or ethnicity? 
You see, the authoritative truth of God's word says that there is only one race. And it doesn't matter the amount of melanin that is in your skin or what nation you come from or where you herald. It says that we value human life regardless of context because God is the giver of life and all humans have been created in his image. Meaning the one that is in the womb or the one that is going to the tomb and anything in between that. And the fact that God made us, all of us, is why we should celebrate diversity rather than using it as something to divide us. Because in Revelations, it is, it is celebrated. Every tribe and every nation and every tongue is going to be singing his praises. That music is going to be awesome. This may make you feel uncomfortable also, but there might actually be dancing in heaven, just so you know. By God's grace, there are diverse cultures and ethnicities, and they should be celebrated. Absolutely. But there is only one race, and that's the human race. And coming up very soon, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I think, said it well when he said, I want my children to be judged on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That's what the cross says, too. And so the last uncomfortable truth of the cross and of his authoritative power that I'm going to say is going to be this, and maybe this is the most uncomfortable for you to hear this morning. At the cross, there are no more victims, and at the cross, there are no more perpetrators, because both our guilt as well as the sin has been put to death on the cross. And so in the cross, there is forgiveness And there is unity, there is reconciliation, there is love. And anything else is not from the cross. So his word is truth. It's not my truth. It may not be your truth. But his word is truth. Sometimes this truth is offensive. Often this truth is controversial. And today this truth is probably a little uncomfortable. But he is the authority. And his word is truth. And so I want to end by telling you today that this is what we are committed to. This is what I'm committed to. I'm committed to God's authority in his scriptural truth. I hope that you are too. First Timothy, I'm sorry, Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2. I'm going to read 3 and 4 also. But on the screen I have 1 through 2. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. uh, Right after that it says, for the time is coming when people aren't going to listen to these kinds of things. They're going to want special teachers that are going to tickle their ears. I'm paraphrasing at this point. You can find it, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 4. But I'm committed to this. I'm committed to preaching the word, even though that's going to probably shrink this congregation and make me very unliked on social media. Not that I have, like, who am I? Who cares about this guy? 
in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the days drawing near. That's what I'm committed to, too. Sam Alberry says this, the church is the beloved bride of Jesus. Church is not his hobby. Come on, Alistair. It's his marriage. And if we're in Christ, it's ours too. We can't accept some of Scripture and not all of it. If we do that, we accept some of Jesus and not all of them. And then the question is, who decides? Where does it start and where does it stop? Who's, who's the factor who makes that choice then? We can't have Jesus without the church. We're faced with a very real choice in this matter. We can either be plugged in to the life-giving, blood-bought bride of Christ, or we can be an amputated finger or leg. The good thing about being an amputated finger or leg is you don't have to deal with the rest of the body. The bad part about being an amputated finger or leg is that you're dead and alone and cold and ultimately useless. Charles Spurgeon says this, I believe that every Christian ought to be joined to some visible church. That is his plain duty according to scriptures. God's people are not cats. I changed that because he had dogs. I like cats better because they're the ones who don't care about anything. So God's people are not cats. Otherwise, they might go about one by one. They are sheep, and therefore, they should be in flocks. And so I want to just end by making some statements and then asking a question. I am committed to the confidence in the gospel rather than compromising for a consumeristic culture. I am committing, committed to leading with rather than apologizing for the offense of the cross. I am committed to raising the bar for myself and for this flock rather than lowering it. To calling you to Jesus-like holiness rather than affirming your personal autonomy. I am committed to joyfully seeking to build an uncomfortable church. And so the question I have for you is this. Will you commit to joining and sticking to that kind of church? Even when it's uncomfortable. Will you commit to looking at church not in terms of what you can get, but how you can give? Considering how your presence with the body might encourage others and all the more as we see the end drawing near. Will you embrace the awkwardness and the inconvenience and the uncool costliness of an uncomfortable church that preaches the word in season, out of season, regardless of the cultural tides that shift? That's the question. And that's the uncomfortable fact of what it means to be a Christian in Christian community with one another as the body of believers. I want to ask you to join with me in prayer. If you would like to do so, I'm going to. God, our Father in heaven, 
these things aren't always personally great to hear and they're definitely not personally exciting to preach knowing that people will be offended. They're certainly not culturally popular. But you have called us to commit to them anyway. So I ask for your help to do that. I ask that you would help me and the other leaders here at ABC, not only today, but in the future, remain faithful to these commitments. I pray for those who make up this body of believers that they would be encouraged by the commitment to those things and that they too would long for them. We pray that you would help us with your Holy Spirit to hold the truth uncompromisingly and yet still